What's up, Stephen? How are you doing, man? Hey, good afternoon, Bryce. Uh, thanks for the invite. I'm excited to be here. You know, our, our personal conversations have uh, of late have gone some twists and turns, so it'll be interesting to see where this ends up. And then I, I my hope is that it will be at least somewhat useful or at the very least entertaining uh, for your listeners. No, I definitely think this is going to be pretty entertaining and uh, hopefully pretty enlightening as well in a couple of different avenues. But no, man, I would love to kind of p pass the baton to you right now and allow you to introduce yourself in the best way you know how, because um, I feel like you're going to be able to do that a little bit better than I can. So go ahead, man, take it away. Sure. If I was to, you know, take the broadest stroke possible to begin with, I guess, you know, um, I am different than most of my peers, colleagues, and friends who are in this, you know, the fitness and wellness space that we find ourselves in because I did not at the university level study exercise science or dietetics or anything of that nature. My my background as far as university was much more focused on philosophy, psychology, and comparative religions. And um, I even did some graduate work in those areas until the PhD you know, track just got a little bit too stuffy. So I would, I dropped out of that and went, well, I went to Asia for a bit and taught English for a little bit, but came back to the States. So we're talking about 1990 and uh, believe it or not, this is going to be shocking, but there weren't a lot of job postings for philosophers at that time. So I had to really do a little bit of, you know, introspection and decide, you know, what skills do I have? What skills could I, could I ascertain? And what did I really like doing that would somehow tangentially be related to to coaching and psychology and philosophy. So, you know, it, it was a good timing for me, actually, because the early 90s was when the mind-body paradigm started to kind of catch on uh, with the general population. So the timing was good. And then I was really fortunate to find the Czech Institute out in California. So Paul Czech and his people at that time were quite a bit ahead of the curve. They were teaching a very, a very holistic approach to, to coaching and uh, not only fitness, you know, back, today you and I and, and the general population is pretty much aware of things like sleep and recovery and breathing and, and cold plunges and meditations. And, but back in the early nineties, that was not nearly as, as prevalent in the uh, gen pop as it is today. So I, I was, I was fortunate to get in on that relatively early and, and realize that um, I did start a company called The Human Form, and it was just just me, and I was doing fitness. Uh, but every every six months or so, I would find out and test and, and educate myself on a new modality. And anything that I found useful to me, I would pass on with my clients. So nutrition and, and lifestyle redesign and NLP and conversational hypnosis and, and different kinds of body work, et cetera, et cetera. Just keep yeah. piling on the different modalities. And as you know, I'm sure, the... The transformations, you know, were more than just physical. You know, it's not just adding muscle and getting lean. It was it was uh, mental, emotional, and even spiritual transformations happening with the clients and with myself. So uh, that was just a you know, I was really in my element there. Uh, my wife then joined me soon thereafter. My my then my soon to be wife joined me in the company. And then if we fast forward. 32 years or so, uh, we, the human form is alive and kicking. We've got a facility now. We've had our own facility for about 20 years now. And in, in the upper Arlington, Grandview, Columbus area, we, um, have a handful of coaches that are, are fantastic. We service our clients in a holistic fashion, primarily with strength training, but we, uh, do corrective exercise. We've got massage therapy. You know, you interviewed Lauren Miller just a few episodes ago. She's a coach massage therapist, 
performance coach and a dear friend. She's fantastic. Uh, we also uh, work with clients just in, from that holistic uh, perspective of everybody is an athlete in terms of the sport of life. And so we try to hit all of those different avenues to to help them. And then my personal coaching these days, I guess, could be categorized as three different silos. I do still work with the body in terms of uh, fitness, strength, and conditioning. I also do some somatic body work. So I do Be Activated, which works with the nervous system, and Reiki, which deals with the energy systems. And you were kind enough to volunteer to be victimized by that combination recently. Uh, I appreciate that. And then I guess finally, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, transformational coaching, where I, I get to engage with clients in an exploration of, say, the the origin of their experience of life moment to moment, and then a, a remembering about who they are foundationally. So it definitely vibes into that sort of spiritual exploration. And to see, see people and experience people recognizing that and becoming authentically free, those are the kind of transformations that I get to, you know, to work with people toward. And I mean, it's just, there couldn't be a better job for me. I mean, I couldn't imagine anything better. I, I would, I absolutely would continue to do this work if I had, you know, all the money in the world. So it's, I'm, I'm blessed in, in many ways. Yeah. You mentioned that I was able to kind of go through your coaching, what a session would feel like and, and what, what that was, what that was like and how you operate in person. And for me, that was very enlightening in a, a few different ways. Uh, but I, I wanted to go through that just so I could understand what you do. I could understand how, how you're able to integrate all of these different, extremely different variables and aspects and modalities into your, your current coaching. Um, one thing that I have always struggled with in terms of the coaching space that I'm in, where it's, it's very much more competitors. It's very much physique oriented. Like you said, it's the, the build muscle to get leaner, you know, step on stage for a single moment, you know, perform in a competition. Um, it's just strictly about performance and it's about aesthetics and there Anyone who is in this world for more than like, you know, a few months realizes that, that there's a lot left to be desired. Um, you know, people come into this world and they're seeking one thing and they realize that finding that thing is not fulfilling in any capacity. And like, they're kind of emptying their spiritual bucket. And maybe you would say, um, to fill their physical bucket. And, um, and that's always been something I've struggled with as a coach, because I can do a phenomenal job with a multitude of clients and I can kind of see them becoming less happy with their life because of that, you know, and, and it's not super fun. It's not, it's not fulfilling as a coach to see that, um, to feel like you're contributing to that. And like I said, I, that that's been something I've, I've struggled with for quite a while, but going through your coaching, being able to experience that, that session, um, it was incredibly interesting to see how you were able to combine the be activated, which we can talk about here in a second, what that is, because I'm sure a lot of people have no clue what that is. The Reiki, which that was my first experience with Reiki and obviously like the strength training and in the more performance based, I guess, traditional method of, of personal training that most people would be familiar with. Um, so I definitely want to break these down and break your philosophies down one by one. Maybe we start with 
personal training and like strength training and resistance training, because that's what most people are going to be the most familiar with. It might be easiest to conceptualize. And then I want to jump into be activated RPR, what those modalities are, and then maybe bounce into Reiki. So you want to take the reins there because I'm sure that you have quite a bit to say on both or all, all three of these. Well, sure. You know, they are, they do, it does seem like a bit of an enigma, these things kind of thrown together. Uh, but at the same time, it really all falls under that, the mind body, yeah. you know? And so, you know, for many folks, you know, in our world, entering into the, we'll just call it the spiritual, you know, what, however we want to use the term yeah. journey uh, for a lot of people, uh, especially those who are in the physical culture and, and aware of their bodies, it makes a lot of sense to jump on, say, the merry-go-round through that that avenue, through the body. And uh, for those people who are not as physically oriented, for those people who are more, say, toward the intellect or are more inclined towards the the esoteric sort of exploration, they can jump on in, in those areas. I mean, to me, it all it, it's all going to end up in the, in the same place sooner or later. So you jump on where it seems most comfortable. And then, then we just kind of layer in, you know, we always say there are lots and lots of rabbit holes here at our facility and, and we can, you know, we don't shove anybody down any, anyone in particular, we let you look around peek over the edge and one looks, you know, looks better and safer. You go into that one, but certainly uh, as far as overall transformation goes, it is easier for most people to relate to the working out because we know we have to work out. Um, you know, it's, fitness is generally recognized as, you know, one of the, the major markers of, of, of our maintaining our health of our, of our body and well-being. So they know they have to do it. Um, they don't always feel the same way about having to look at, you know, the essence of their, of their soul, which can seem a little bit overwhelming. Right. But it really does all blend together in such a nice way. Um, you know, to change our mental emotional state, we can use the body. We can, you, you know, uh, go after and subdue the nervous system and drop into that parasympathetic state, which we'll, we'll talk about with both be activated and Reiki, as you know, moving the body, especially, uh, in my experience, cardiovascular training can change the hormonal makeup of your body for the rest of the day. So you can change, uh, the way your, your mental emotional state feels by using the body. There's no doubt about that. So uh, often my clients will start, you know, will start that way in terms of getting the body feeling better. And, and you know, in, in, in addition to things like strength training, just making sure they're hydrated, you know, just making sure that they're covering their very, very basics of, of the B vitamins and the magnesiums and the D3, K2, you know, all, all of those that most people are depleted with and the simple, those simple shifts that are bigger wins with very little effort is where we usually like to start. And then of course, with the, with the physicality stuff, I'm, we're a bit of, we're a bit of geeks. We do assessments and we measure forward head posture and, you know, pelvic tilts and all that kind of stuff that, that some people really like, and some people, you know, doesn't matter as much, but we want to get the body moving as efficiently as we can. So the stress on the system, the overall physical stress, even just of gravity is reduced. And then, of course, when people are hunched over and they have forward head posture, they're walking around, it, they're used to it now, mind you, that they don't recognize how much they're struggling just to move, just to ambulate, just to breathe. And so as you open them up and get their body moving better, um, you know, breathing improves, anxiety naturally lessens. I mean, it, it's a cascading effect of positive results from just um, just modest, you know, changes physically. So 
So absolutely, the body is a is a great place to start that way. And as most people already accept, they need to take care of themselves. Oftentimes, we we will start there. Now, almost all of my private clients, we always start with at least ten minutes of be activated prior to the strength training because it gets the body tuned up, if you will. And so, oftentimes, we we will do we will do that. So, and we can talk about be activated, you know, in depth all we want, and then. So a client comes in and we start with be activated and then we may go and work out or we may go for a run or we may uh, stay on the table and drop right into uh, Reiki or we'll do a little be activated. The nervous system has has calmed down and uh, we sit down and, and we we chat. We, we explore, you know, uh, where we are, you know, in our mental, emotional space at that time. So it really is uh, I have. I'm fortunate to be able to coach in a way where whoever shows up that day, so to speak, whatever they need in the moment is the the avenue that we'll take for that training session. Whereas it's, you know, it's not laid out in advance that we have to do this, this, and this. Whereas if you're training three or four people in a semi-private group, you just can't, you're, you can't afford to do that, obviously. So I think it's the, for me, it's the best way to offer coaching that is flexible and truly, you know, personalized to the de to the moment, really, not just to the person, but to to the person who shows up to me, who's in front of me right now. I, I'll be honest, I've never talked to anyone who approaches coaching the way that you do. Um, like I, like I, I experienced that. I don't think I experienced the full breadth of it because even just hearing you talk about that, the different avenues that we could have gone down in that moment, um, it is continuing to just kind of like, you know, broaden how I view what you offer because, um, and maybe even offers the wrong word. Like, I think that your, your coaching is, is just completely different than, than everything that I associate with traditional coaching. Um, and maybe that's the point, maybe that's the, the, the point, you know, because I, uh, I mentioned it to you a second ago, but I've written extensively about this. That it's kind of just like this almost existential crisis in me where traditional coaching seems to be failing a lot of people. Um, it's, and we can expand that beyond just like the fitness space too. Like there's a lot left to be desired. There's a lot lacking in the traditional approach to coaching and helping people improve th their lives th themselves. Um, and again, just going back to like the buckets analogy, because I think that that's, in a lot of ways appropriate feels like no matter what you're doing you're you're filling one bucket at the expense of another you know it's just a very zero-sum bucket game that we have operating there um but your approach feels very much to me it's like no we can fill all of these buckets at the same time maybe it's a little bit slower but we don't have to dump one out for the sake of filling one up and it's not this continuous merry-go-round as you said um we can continuously approve or improve over time, um, in a semi-linear fashion, uh, it doesn't have to be this, you know, winner-take-all type of thing where you focus only on one aspect of your physical, emotional, spiritual health, um, and have to completely disregard the rest of of what you are doing, the rest that rest of what makes you you. And maybe that's just a very broad interpretation of what you're saying. Um, but listening to you talk about what you offer, it's it's very very eye-opening. Um, for my own my own approach. Um. So yeah, if we want to jump into be activated, I think that would be amazing because maybe that would kind of round out or start to round out uh, a lot of the ideas 
that you're presenting and that you're putting forth, but is there anything that you want to add to kind of what I said before we jump into be activated? Well, I think that was, that, that was well said. I should have you do my branding actually for me. Um, <laughs> I, well, what's it, you know, I do recall you talking about, you know, if I heard correctly, your, some of your competitors who may be doing extremely well in yeah. terms of their onstage performance, but, but becoming more and more miserable. Right. And, and, you know, I, that's very much, I think in line with most of, most of my, I say my, my high level CEO clients, they have, um, achieved a lot. I have a lot of clients who by materialistic standards, they've built multiple companies, sold multiple companies. They, they have a, a great family and kids they adore. Basically they have everything they ever wanted and they thought they'd feel differently. Yeah. And so just, I, I assume you have competitors who, who have, who've reached the, you know, a certain level of, of, uh, notoriety within their sport, within their physique sport, they're doing very, very well. And yet they don't necessarily, they're not able to enjoy that success. And so my work with a lot of most every, all these people is simply that we, you were looking for something in the wrong place. You were looking in the materialistic world for an internal feeling. And so you, we set a goal and we all, it's so common to do this. It, it's just a simple misunderstanding. We set a goal in the material world in order to try to feel something, which is exactly backwards. Cause we, we've all, I, I call them dirty goals versus clean goals. So dirty goals would be goals that we set. I'm going to win this competition. I'm going to get my PhD, you know, whatever it might be. It does, doesn't matter what it is so that I will feel validated to myself or others so that I will feel accomplished so that I will be a good person so that people will admire whatever it might be, but it's a setup because we all know it, it doesn't work that way. It, it might work that way for a minute or a week, but eventually, usually sooner than later, we recognize that, oh, that didn't quite do it. So then we mistakenly think maybe I need to win a bigger competition or get another degree. You know, we keep pushing toward the material, but the truth is we can never get enough of what we don't really need. And so yeah. clean goals, on the other hand, which is what I like, it's the goal setting I like to do, is a relationship with goals where we come to realize that we are already in this moment, whole, complete, and perfect. And from that space, what then seems really neat to do, be, or have? And if I'm already whole and complete, and for whatever reason, I think it'd be really cool to do a physique competition. That just, that'd be really cool to go after that with everything I've got and it's clean. So there's nothing riding on it. You can go after it with all of all, all, everything you've got. And if you do well, it's awesome. If you don't do well in whatever, however we're judging that you're still good, right? You're not pressure. You're not putting the pressure of this goal with making you feel something. And what I have found is that when people have clean goals like that, I'm already whole and complete. Now, what do I want to do, be or have just because, well, why the fuck not? It's a life. Let's go after something. It's fun to go after something. But when you realize that the result says nothing about you, about your, your value as a human soul, then you, you're playing with the house's money. There's nothing to lose. Everything is only to gain. And what I find is that people generally are much more successful 
because I don't think anybody does better with a boot on their neck and, and, and having to rely on their performance to dictate their value to themselves or others. So uh, it, it, it's a, it, you it's a win-win situation when we clean up the foundation of, of our goal setting. And that's why that there's a spiritual element to every endeavor that we take when, when foundationally we, we, we're clean and foundationally we're solid and we're whole then we can go out into the world and play hard. You know, why not? That's what makes it fun. And competition's fun because you're you're playing to win. Yeah. But in the big picture, you really can't lose. And that that that's the shift. Yeah. Where I think, you know, so many really high performers, um, they drop into the flow state. When you're in the flow state, you're not making decisions. You're you're not asking yourself, I how am I doing right now? No, because if you're asking yourself that, you've already dropped out of flow. You're already judging yourself. When you're in the flow state, when you are, when I would say grounded in who and what you really are, you don't ask those, you don't even make decisions. You, you're playing a sport or you're, or you're giving a presentation, whatever it is that you're involved in, you're just doing because you're actually just being. And so that, that I think is the beauty that uh, these elite performers, we all of the all high performers know what I'm talking about. Actually, everyone drops in and out of flow throughout the day, every day. But what happens is a lot of these very gifted elite athletes have a game or even a streak of matches where they are they're on it, and then they think, "How do I get back into that flow state?" Maybe it was my red socks. I'm like, it wasn't your fucking red socks, man. It, you know, it, it, there's no trick to get into flow. It's not a, it's not a, it's a realization model. And when you, when we truly begin to realize who and what we are, we can drop into flow with much more effortless frequency. And from there, from there, we can play. We can play in life. We can play in our sport. And that, that I think really is the essence. Being able to fully play enjoy ourselves and oftentimes it increases our chances of of success say in the the wins and loss category as well there's a lot that i could add or or ask questions about there um just i i really really like the clean versus dirty goals the way that i've always viewed goal setting or motivations in general it was just levels of hierarchy and the idea being you always want to get to the lowest level you want to figure out what the lowest deepest level of your motivation actually is you want to you that like subconscious root of of what is driving you because you can always ask why you know like i want to win this competition well why well because then you know other people will view me as successful well well why do you care about that oh well because you know like that is associated with with you know meaning and purpose in life well wh why do you care about having meaning and purpose like you can always ask why 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 and eventually you'll come to this ultimate realization and figure out like what is actually driving you what is that lowest level of hierarchy for you and that would be for you like the cleaner i guess the, the cleaner aspect of what the the driving motivational force is but um it's it's very interesting because i i want to ask you here in a second um you know about some of your religious beliefs because you had mentioned you studied theology in college and and that was definitely a big aspect of your life and i know i've been in your office before there's a lot of uh, religious artifacts, <laughs> uh, to, to say the least, religious artifacts. Uh, maybe you can describe those here in a second as well. But 
just talking about goals in general, I'm someone who I would describe as a very, very high achiever. Um, like I'm extremely, extremely motivated by success and not, not as much material things, but just the idea of success. Like I'm very motivated by that. Like I'm very driven to, to achieve and accomplish those things. Um, but exactly what you said, every time I've found a success in life, what I would deem to be a success, it never feels like I've achieved enough once I get there. And I can't really relish in those accomplishments whenever I do get to that, that point that I had set out to achieve, because by that point, I've already moved the goalpost further. So there is an aspect of what you're explaining here is you're not chasing the goalpost. You're not trying to get closer. You're bringing the goalpost to you. Like you can be on the 50 yard line and you just bring the goalpost to you. And that's something I don't think I've ever really thought of before, you know, maybe abstractly I've, I've had that same idea before, but it's never really been something that has seemed tangibly possible because for me, I've always just viewed myself as someone who needs to accomplish more, do more, find more success, make more money, create more life experiences. Um, and you know, it, there is that aspect of, for me, always feeling a little bit unfulfilled, a little bit lacking purpose. It's like, well, I'm, I've done quite a bit more than like I would have expected that I'd have been able to do three years ago, but there's still that chasing the rabbit feeling for me. It's like, am I ever going to be able to catch that rabbit or am I just going in circles here? Um, but I, I highly, highly, highly agree with you that there has to be a better way. And that better way definitely feels like getting deeper, figuring out what that cause is, what that drive is and bringing the goalposts to you rather than continuing to chase them. Um, now if you want to add something to that, you can, or we can just talk about like your, your religious beliefs and underpinnings. Well, I, I will say that my, my initial, I would say self-development, you know, self-improvement for a back in the days when it was like cassette tapes, right. Um, was Tony Robbins. Robbins. Yeah. yeah, no, live with passion, Tony. And, and I, you know, to be fair, I spent a couple years in that organization as well and was trained by some of his top folks back then. And it did serve me well in many ways, it's certainly in terms of uh, sort of materialistic objectives, you know, uh, with starting a business. And I, you know, I would listen to those tapes and get fired up. And, and at, for a time, you know, it was, it was motivating. And I got a lot of shit done. And then something started to, I started to get a sense, you know, cause Tony, now I can't speak to Tony. I, I would not, I can't, I haven't really kept up with his work. So he, I assume he has probably continued to, you know, advance in his theories and stuff too, as we, as we all do. Right. But back then it was very much almost honored to be discontent. And he would say, Use where you are now, the pain of where you are now to project you out into the future. Never be satisfied. Set a goal. He would have big, hairy, audacious goals. Set your BHAGs and go out and take massive, massive action. And then as soon as you got that, what's the next mountain to climb? And so it started to feel to me like he was, you know, a, kind of a dopamine junkie, right? He, he want, it was just the initial attainment of that goal. And then he had to get the next one and the next one. And it, I thought this dude, and I was projecting to be fair, never seems content. 
and it's always in the future when I attain the next thing, then I'll be, then I'll be happy. Then I'll, then I will somehow be fulfilled. And, you know, in other cultures, in our culture, I, I would say contentment, um, there's all, um, there is a, a strong prejudice against contentment. It, it, it kind of, it sits side by side with laziness, you know, in this culture. Um, and I think it's, it's a very bad rap for it because in, in other cultures, uh, contentment, it sits side by side with awakening and enlightenment and wisdom and peace, you know? And so I, I started to be like, hey, maybe there's, you know, Tony was always into state manipulation. So uh, and that's what, you know, the NLP and whatever he knocked off NLP, you know, you, you, you feel this way. I feel insecure and I want to feel confident and composed to go and give this, you know, talk. And so I can, I can breathe this way and I can tap these things and I can roar like a, I can, you know, all this, sh I, whatever I want to do. I have all kinds of techniques and, you know, it's not as though they don't often work, they, they can work. And so it, you know, it was very, and for many people at some point in their journey, it can be a very freeing experience to be able to change your mental, emotional state more or less at will. I mean, and that feels like freedom. And it did for me for, for a while. And then I started to get just a bit of a hint that maybe that wasn't true freedom because I, I, I was already coaching very wealthy folks who had financial freedom. They could travel anywhere they wanted in the world at any time. They could, they could do materially almost anything they wanted to do. And I would, and they would, you know, infer with me that they were not free. They were prisoners in some other way. And so I began to think instead of being able to manipulate my mental emotional state, what if I, what if I came to better just understand that my mental emotional state is always in flux, my mental emotional state, my true peace can never really fluctuate, but the mental emotional personality traits that I have and all my quirks and all that kind of, that will always be in and out of flux. What if I can instead relax into that and instead of trying to manipulate everything, instead try to truly understand it and be at peace with that. And as I experimented in those realms, I found out that I was far more content. I wasn't motivated as much by, I would say, desperation. So when I was, when I was taking massive action to achieve some goal that I, you know, just made up goal, I just would make one up, you know, usually big. I want to run a 50 mile race in the mountains, that kind of shit. And I would just go for that, right? I'd, think, I'd say, oh, Oprah runs a marathon. So my first race ever was a 50-mile race, you know, just crazy stuff, you know, for, and it was, it's not that it wasn't fun, but my goals back in that, in that time were a bit on the dirtier side. I thought I would feel something. I could change my mental emotional state by achieving something. So instead, I would explore, instead of moving from desperation so instead of trying to achieve something crazy so that I would feel validated to myself and or others, I would, I would think, what if I was already whole and complete? So instead of desperation, what if it was inspiration motivating me? What, what if it would just be kind of cool to challenge myself to do something? What if it would be cool to start a new project? What if it would be cool to, you know, you know, ask somebody to be a partner to in a, in a, in a, in a new business, but what if it would just be cool? 
and that I was inspired by it and that the outcome, although I'll work, I'll work quite hard. I'm like you, I mean, I'll work. I have no, I like working, but what if, if it turned out as I thought it, I wanted it to, or that it should, or if it didn't, that really didn't matter. It was actually a fact that I was inspired and I, I let inspiration pull me towards something instead of desperately trying to avoid or push away whatever uncomfortable, insecure feelings I had and trying to validate that through, through, uh, through the material world. That's great. I couldn't have said that better, honestly. <laughs> no, that's, that's really, it's really enlightening in a lot of different ways. And the more that I hear you talk about this, the more that, um, you know, for me, I just, I, I feel that kind of sense of, of direction being lost in a lot of ways, you know, like, I, and I'm someone who I would not describe as content <laughs> in any capacity. You know, I actually had a friend the other day who we were having a conversation and she asked me like, you know, do I feel content? Like, do I, do I have any sense of contentment? And honestly, like, it's very hard for me to say that I do. That's just one of those, one of those states for me that has always felt a little bit jittery. Whenever I start feeling a little bit settled down, things start to fall into place around me. I'm like, all right, there needs to be a little bit more chaos, right? Like I need, I need some, some action happening. Um, so I've always kind of just sought that out. And like what you mentioned about Tony Robbins being more like that dopamine junkie, like that feels very much like me. Like I just want to feel something, right? Like I, I, I need that. And I've always kind of intuitively felt like for me, it was more of like a spiritual lacking and I'm not religious. I'm not religious. I grew up religious and I grew up in a religious household. I feel like the way that I was brought up put me off to religion in a lot of ways. And I feel like that also happens with a lot of other people. I'm, I'm not religious in the, the traditional sense. I would definitely more so say that I have a spiritual leaning. Like I, I like the idea of believing that there's something more, but it's not faith-based. Like I, I don't, I don't have the capacity to blindly have faith in anything. I don't, I don't think, um, but, which is one of the reasons why I've been very drawn to a lot of Eastern philosophies, a lot of like the Buddhism, even like Hinduism, which Hinduism I would consider to be more of like a, a classical religion with believing in, in deities and things like that. Uh, but yeah, I, I think we were even talking about like, uh, were we talking about Taoism? Yeah. So, so I would, I would love to hear you explain your philosophy of religion, spirituality. Maybe, maybe you can go in different directions on each of those. I'm sure you know a lot more about religion and spirituality than I do, but, uh, your thought process is so different than mine. And I'm sure a lot of other people's that would maybe be listening to this. So I would love you to expand on kind of some, some of your beliefs, maybe some of your background as well. So where you have been able to get to where you are now. Sure. The, you know, of the three, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, all, all I find fascinating, you know, Buddhism was my initial draw. I, I was turned on to Alan Watts when I was in high school and that, that sent me on that path. And I've always, uh, really enjoyed him. Now, Buddhism for me, some people consider Buddhism to be more of a psychology mm -hmm. than a, than a religion. Yeah. And it really depends which country you're in. And, and the, the beauty, what I, what, what I love most about Buddhism is that, you know, it really, of course, the Buddha didn't have any inclination to start, you know, Buddhism, you know, as Jesus didn't, he, Jesus wasn't a Christian, you know, that whole thing. But he really was just like, people are suffering. What, you know, let me figure this out so we all can figure this out. And 
he wanted it to be useful. And so one of the analogies that that is often used for that he would talk about in whatever capacity was that if you have a canoe to cross over a river and then you have to climb a mountain, you ditch the fucking canoe. You don't take the canoe up the mountain, right? So any sort of framework, any sort of spiritual understanding in terms of, of, of you know, on your journey, they're all tools. They're all, they're all frameworks and you use them to the extent that they are useful and then not to be afraid of dropping them to whatever capacity when they're no longer appropriate for where you find yourself. You can always build a new canoe if you, you know, cross a new river, right? But it's, I, I like that and not being into that, you know, that sunk cost, you know, fallacy of I've spent so much time learning about this and studying this and dedicating, you know, if once you get to the other side, uh, you're already on the other side and to, to haul the canoe with you uh, just doesn't, just it weighs you down. It weighs you down. And so a lot of people I find want to hang on to different uh, belief structures that have served them up to a certain point, but no longer serve them. So the ability to to uh, be present to what you most need is something I've always enjoyed about Buddhism. And Buddhism also looks extremely different in different cultures as it's supposed to, because again, Buddhism is supposed to be useful. And so I've never, I have never fully understood um, the draw of say in Columbus, Ohio, we actually have a a Tibetan black hat Buddhist, you know, uh, group, uh, which, you know, to the cultures are so dramatically different from Tibet to, to Ohio, yeah, that yeah. It, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to, to, to even suggest or impose those sort of realities of a Tibetan culture onto ours. So you'll see, uh, the perfect example would be that if you, if you go to say a, uh, Nepalese or, uh, maybe even a Thai restaurant, you may see, a uh, an image of a Buddha who is uh, starved. His ribs are, he's skinny as, as fuck. His ribs are showing. And that that is uh, representative of when the Buddha was going on the far side of of the ascetic movement where he was, uh, you know, hating his body and such and, and, and starving and fasting extremely. And then you go to a Chinese restaurant and you see a big fat Buddha with all the kids all over the place, right? Yeah. So the Chinese have taken it, you know, the, 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 the volume of the belly of the Buddha and he's smiling and kids, it's more family oriented. It, it, you know, the, the girth represents, you know, success and wealth. And there's even in some Chinese Buddhisms, there's even a kind of a heaven, like, you know, place you can go. And, you know, I mean, the Buddha never said shit about that, but, but again, it, it, it doesn't really matter because it's supposed to mold and adapt to the cultures because the question is, is this helpful? in reducing your suffering. And if it is, then, then that's great. And so it will of course look different in, in different cultures. Hinduism on the other hand is such an elaborate, um, system of deities. And my favorite thing about Hinduism, which wasn't my focus, uh, as much as Buddhism, but what I loved about it was just the variety of deities and how each and every one represented a different aspect of Brahman or, or of God, of the divine. 
from the raging Kali to the, you know, the promiscuous, you know, Krishna, he's my favorite, you know, cause you know, <laughs> you know, ornery little Krishna grows up and, and bangs all the milk maidens. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's an elaborate stories and, 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 you know, that, that the, the divine can express itself in so many different ways. And that's, that's not only, it's that's not only true, but it's good. And so if we are in that image, we, of course, will have a wide variety of expressions and it's all, it's all divine. And then Taoism is such a cool, uh, it's such a cool way of looking at the, it's such, it's so much more subtle. You know, there are no real deities. It's, uh, it's, a, it's the flow of life. It, you know, the Tao, they say the Tao that can be spoken is not the real Tao. You know, there's nothing you can really say the essence of the flow of, you know, it has to do a lot with nature and being in tune with the, the rhythm of life and aligning yourself such, you know, that, you know, uh, Alan Watts, uh, one of my favorite quotes he would talk about was with Taoism was it's the, it's like the art of sailing versus the effort of rowing. And we, so often find ourselves rowing hard against light, usually against the current to make something happen. When instead we can study the tides, study the winds, adjust our sails and, and move in that direction. More of a, uh, a you know, Taoism uses a lot with not, Uwe means not forcing. So learning how to not force life and to, and to get into the flow of life and so it's a beautiful um, surrendering and acknowledgement of where life is going and more of an intuitive, instead of, uh, instead of the, uh, our, our culture, you know, with, for all of its good stuff and benefits, our rugged individualism and the idea of making something happen and the idea of, well, the illusion of control, you know, is something that, um, as as we let go of that and drop into the flow of life, uh, there is what uh, my clients initially, they don't really know what I'm talking about or believe me, but there is an effortless effort that can can start to imbibe your life where you're not you're not making things happen. You are in the flow. you you are directing things, you know, you're pushing energy modestly in a certain direction. But you know damn well that there are hundreds of variables that out of your control, if it works out, it's not because you did shit, you know, it's that because all of the variables and everybody else's own stories all, you know, coincided just right. And you're like, holy cow. It, but often, as you know, things don't work out the way we intend, but sometimes they work out far better than we could imagine. Because as you, people are just so, we're, we are so shitty at projecting what's going to make us happy, right? And the problem there is that there's nothing that can make us happy, right? And so, uh, so we, we, we imagine these scenarios and we try to make them happen. And then if by chance it works out that way, we still don't feel as we thought we would feel. So this is, uh, you know, this is the, the circle we keep going around and it's, it, it's beautiful because we'll keep going around and around again until we get it. You know, I, I often tell people, look, you're going to be presented as we all are with the people and the circumstances to show you where you're stuck. 
you know, someone gets, uh, well, you might, you might like this one. I can't remember if I shared this with you on our last meeting, uh, but I, I've been working on a, a, a word called FUTU. No, did I share it? Okay. No. So FUTU, F-U-T-U. It's a combination of fuck you and thank you. So here's the definition, right? The paradoxical mental emotional state of being triggered by someone while simultaneously feeling a sense of gratitude for being shown where you are not yet completely free. That's foo too, motherfucker. <laughs> That's really good. I like that. I, so like that also makes me think of um, like in the English language, there are a lot of words that we don't have to capture, especially like emotions and state of being that other cultures and other languages do. Um, and obviously I, I don't have, I don't have the, the wealth of knowledge whenever it comes to like, you know, Eastern cultures that you do. So like, you know, talking about like whether that's Indian or, or Chinese or just, you know, Southeastern Asian in general. But, um, but I, I would imagine that you could probably echo that and like, speak to that point a little bit better than I can. But that's something I've noticed. It's like, there are a lot of, a lot of words that we just seem to lack in the English language for as much density of words as we have, there are just some things that seem to kind of fall through the cracks. There are, you know, and, and again, languages are so fast. I mean, there are some languages, German, for example, just smashes words together, you know, <laughs> it, 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 you know which is kind of interesting, you know, yeah. and, and I study just, I, I, I'm illiterate in like seven languages, you know, I, including English, barely uh, illiterate in English. I study just enough Russian and stuff just to not be able to say anything, you know, that can be comprehended. But Languages are beautiful, and certainly languages like Sanskrit are um, on my arm. They're on Pali, you know, the, the the symbolic languages of of the Buddhist scriptures initially, and and then there are the the sounds, you know, the Om that we're all vaguely familiar with, if not more, you know, the sound of the universe, you know. So there is there are languages where the actual in the tonalities and 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 the the vibrations of them themselves can you know work to evoke say the uh the vagal nerve system to to help us calm down so there yeah languages you know our language um are you know is all language is going to be limited right because we're using we're using form words to try to express the formless so all languages are going to are going to fail regardless of which ones they are and and fall short so we just try to we try to fail as gracefully as we can because we want to talk about it, right? We want to experience and share and 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 delve into it. But we are actually talking at at the outermost levels about something that is beyond the mind. Mm -hmm. And our minds always will try to conceptualize and categorize. That's, I mean, minds do a great job of that. And in certain contexts, it, you know, the I, I never want to have anyone misunderstand that I'm shitting on the intellect. I mean, the, intel the mind is. I mean, we look around every cool thing that's ever been created was first an idea in somebody's mind. And then some freaking engineers were able to take, you know, stardust from dead stars and create the minerals and build, I mean, it's fucking amazing, right? And so the mind and the intellect is fantastic in certain contexts and for certain jobs. But when we're talking about things that are beyond the mind, uh, and there is a place, I believe, well beyond the mind, where we already are centered and calm and peaceful and and, you know, we can we can point toward things. You know, I use metaphors and analogies because I don't have the skills 
of, say, Rumi or, or other mystical poets, you know, poetry in any language, of course, you know, you're not, it's not the, it's not the words that are on the page. It's behind the words. It's between the words. It's the, it's the sense of those words. And so, you know, that's why those, the sort of mystical poets, you know, have such, have such reverence and skill uh, in, 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 in moving us with their words, because it really, it is beyond the words as the truth they're pointing to is beyond, beyond our, our traditional conscious mind. Uh, that very well said, very well said. And just kind of, kind of going back to what you said about like the words having a little bit more, there's more form to specific words arranged in specific ways. They move you like there's, there's a force behind them. That force moves you. And that's something I think I've definitely gotten into writing a lot more. I think that I sometimes struggle to communicate what's actually inside my head, what I'm actually feeling, what I'm actually thinking unless I have the opportunity to really like look at what I'm writing, what I'm saying and analyze it and look for the right word for the right state of being, or like to, to match what I'm feeling, match what I'm thinking. Sometimes it's a, it's a fucking process, you know, like sometimes I'm looking at a sentence trying to communicate something that's inside my head. And I'm like, that just doesn't look right. It doesn't feel right. And I, I might look at that for an hour, just like changing words up, changing the sentence structure up a little bit. And finally, I'm like, you know what? That's exactly what I want. That's perfect. That's how I feel. That's what's inside my head. I can move on now. But a lot of people don't don't have that ability, whether that's, you know, time is luxury. Being able to write well is a luxury. Having like a, a breadth of linguistic abilities and, you know, like being able to use a lot of different words. Like, like I, I would say I'm good in that spectrum, like probably better than some people, but you know, in terms of my ability to like focus on my thoughts, I'm definitely a lot worse than other people. You know, there are some people that can just block out all of that noise and chatter in their head and they don't need an hour to look at one sentence and find the perfect word because they just know what they're thinking. They, they know how to say it. They know how to communicate it. That's something I've really struggled with until I started really putting a little bit more of a concerted effort into writing. But because I've done that, I feel like I appreciate good writing so much more now. And I, I definitely have like, you know, some of my favorite authors and, and every once in a while, like I'll read a sentence, whether that is, you know, in a book in an article and, you know, a newsletter, whatever. And you feel that force behind it. You're like, holy shit. Like, like what the fuck? How did you, how did you come up with that? Like, how did you pull that out of your head? Um, but like just the power of words and the power of language, sometimes it's like, it actually shocks you a little bit because of how beautiful it can be and like how someone can take a thought that's in their head, put it into a medium of communication and then like stamp it inside the head of someone else perfectly. Like, obviously that's its whole own meta <laughs> breakdown. Um, but you know, like that's always really, really blown my mind in a lot of different ways. It's been something I've been extremely envious of, of a lot of different people who have that ability um, I don't know if you know who this is, but there's an author named Maria Popova. Okay. Um, right. She, uh, she, she writes a newsletter called brain pickings and she like just throws it out there all the time. Just probably the, the best wordsmith I've ever seen. And I mean, it, it is sometimes just absolutely astounding. Like again, just hits you with like that force field. And I'm always just so envious. I'm like, Jesus, like, what if I could actually write like that or communicate like that? And I've heard people giving speeches before where you're just like, 
entranced by like the way that they talk and the way that they gesture and like they just suck everyone into their vortex you know and like that is it's such a skill it's such a skill and i mean obviously it can be used for bad as well you know like that like there are definitely uh, malicious uses for that type of charisma but you know just being able to accurately communicate what's going on inside of your head is i mean it's hard to underappreciate how important that truly is and I know for myself, just, you know, you know, again, to, to reinforce this aspect, I struggle with focusing. I struggle because I'm always all over the place. Uh, my brain and my attention is being pulled in a million different directions. I really have to almost drop into that flow that you were talking about earlier to be able to focus on one line of thought to the point that I can really pull out what my true thoughts and my true beliefs and my true state is in that moment. Um, whereas other people maybe have that switch more quickly um i don't know if you can speak to that a little bit but maybe that was something that you you also have struggled with maybe that's something that you've been able to improve over time yeah i i do i share the the reverence for for wordsmith you know and and, and certainly the poets rumi and those guys and then i also um sort of the spiritual texts there are some you know i certainly didn't try to didn't try to write like those guys when i was doing my book uh, but but I'm also thrilled with things. Uh, you know Tom Robbins. He's my favorite fictional author. He, I'll send you. I mean, some of those passages that he writes. It's just you wonder where in the hell that skill set. But you know, it's interesting because um, I I read a lot. Well, I read often, I should say. But my wife will be. She'll look over. We read. You know, in bed before sleep every night. She's like, Are you Are you reading that book again? And I mean, there are, there are some books that I, I'm a highlight junkie, right? And there are some books that I probably have read 15 to 20 times. You know, I'll read them twice a year or more. And I'll be like, well, yeah. And she says, why? And I'm like, well, because I was a different person the last time I read this. That, you know, the last time I, last time I read this, uh, that, that was two iterations of Stephen ago. And so I, I will, I, you know, I will get different things out of it six months or a year later. And that to me is, is, uh, is really a relief because I know that I, it, it's, it's, it's proof to me that I am, you know, still moving and growing and I, you know, I am being pulled forth, you know, with some eschatological realism, like the, the desire, you know, to be pulled into growth, you know, and yeah. I'll keep reading the same stuff, you know, over and over again, but it's, it's not the same stuff. And and um, when I, you know, journaling, it's interesting, um, you know, just getting stuff out. And then there's also, there's also a form of, of writing that one of my teachers, Adyashanti, off, often uh, would suggest, which is not writing a single word until you know it's true. And so you talked about, you know, writing one sentence, oh, how do you, but but spending some time with a, a sincere, uh, you know, discipline of only writing down what I know is true. And so it's a lot of self-inquiry and, and fooling around with words and, and letting them sit and, and being, you know, um, being diligent in that practice. And then of course there is the, you know, uh, I never would have gotten, you know, my book finally done if I, you know, stuck in that space too long. So you, you know, you, um, 
when I was writing my book, do you know Rob Bell? Are you familiar with Rob Bell? Yeah, um, yeah yes, yes. Love, uh, he was one of my writing mentors and, you know, he turned me on, you know, I, I would, I would, I would look up these traditional, you know, everyone, like you, I'm sure when you, when you start a new venture, you look up best practices, you know, of how to do this venture. And then of course you ignore most of them, you know, but, but it's good to know what they are before you ignore them. And, and I was so glad to find him because I would, I would read, you know, um, sort of describe the people they'd say, you know, uh, the perfect book title has four to five words and it has this cadence to it and has, this, you know, all this stuff to it. And then Rob would tell me, look, if five years, 10 years later, your book title still makes you smile, that's the right title. And they would tell you, look, you got to you got to have your avatar. You know, you have to know their name, their gender, their age, their job, you know, you have to, and you write to that person. And I was like, that just doesn't feel authentic to me. Yeah. You know, and so he'd like, and he told me he's got, I don't know, 12 bestsellers. He said he never, ever once thought about an audience. Instead, and this is what I took on, what, what do I have to share? You know, what do I have that may, who knows, be of use to somebody else? And, and how can I share that in a voice? Nothing I've ever said is, is original truly original but how but when i'm saying it it's, it's it's original through me so my own you know personality flavoring you know um what is it how does it come forth out of me and could that be useful and even if even if it's not it's an exercise for myself yeah bringing that forth creating you know because I, I i know you well enough already to know that you're a creator and if you are actually, it's really funny. I, I remember John Cougar Mellencamp. Are you young enough to know when he was uh, little pink houses for you and me? You know, uh, you know, little ditty about Jack and Diane. The name sounds very familiar. Okay. So he was, you know, when I was growing up in the eighties, he was John Cougar and then he okay. became John Cougar. Now he's just John Mellencamp, but he's now in his what seventies. And he's, I guess, regarded by many songwriters as, you know, top of the game. Yeah. And he, I saw an interview with him uh, and it was, I, I watched the whole thing after because it was really fascinating, but he basically said this. He said, people who are creators of whatever kind need to keep creating because if they don't create and push it out externally, they're going to spiral down internally. It's going to, it's going to bite them on the ass. And, you know, from the Bible says, you know, if you bring forth that with, with is within you, it will set you free. And if you do not bring forth that, which is within you, it will crush you. Mm -hmm. And so it's not even, you know, folks like you and me and most people you deal with, it's not a matter of, should I create something? It's you really have to. For your own mental, emotional well-being, it needs to be expressed. And then the secondary benefit of that, of course, is that it may, it may be useful to somebody else. I mean, that's just, that's just a, an extra, you know, icing on the cake. But, but I think, uh, creatives like ourselves and, and they're in the real creatives who do incredible art and that kind of, they need to create for their own mental, emotional well-being. Just to branch off of that point too. I, I think that what you said about not saying or not having put forth anything original, I, I think that's probably an oversimplification. Um, I've felt that way before as well. Um, but I think that anything that you take, any fact, any statement, any, any concept, and whenever you overlay a new experience on top of it and then present it, it is something a little bit different, you know? So like you could say one plus one equals two, but if you describe that 
in a way that is your interpretation of it, overlaying your experience of life and all of the other experiences that have formed who you are now, and then pre present that new information or present that, I guess, old inf information regurgitated. It is something new and it, it adds a little bit of like a tail to it that wasn't there before. Um, but I, I honestly think that's how over time things are created. New things are put forth. You're just over, over lots of time, people just continue to talk about the same concepts over and over and over again. And then someone eventually sees something new in that regurgitated concept that creates a new concept. And they, they figure out something new from the old. Um, and then it goes in a different way. And, you know, it's just, it's building off of the prior knowledge, the prior experience that's been formed over tens, hundreds, thousands of years of everyone has come before you. Um, and you know, maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that's a little bit more, uh, you know, philosophical than it needs to be, but, um, especially in terms of writing and, and writing is something, again, I, I've grown to have a completely newfound appreciation for it, um, over the last like couple of years, but you know, whenever I sit down to write, like you said, there's, there's nothing new coming out of, of the pencil of the, the keyboard, whenever I'm typing, it's just my reflections on whatever it is I'm saying. It's my interpretations of whatever it is I'm saying. And a lot of times it's not even for someone else to read. It's just for, for me to get it out because, you know, for a lot of people, a lot of people that maybe are a little bit more introspective, like I'm definitely someone who, who is introspective. I think about thinking, <laughs> think about thinking about thinking. And, um, and that can be a pretty dangerous place to be for a lot of different people. And like you said, you kind of spiral down into, into this internal pit if you're not careful. Um, but just externalizing a lot of those feelings, a lot of those thoughts and states that I I'm in or that I have been in, it allows me to get it out in a way that I can examine that doesn't feel like this internal examination of me. It feels more like I'm seeing it in front of me. I can externalize it. And then if I want to, I can leave it there. It doesn't have to overlap, overlay back on top of myself. And it's like weird recursive, you know, never ending spiral into, you know, into this pit of misery. So again, maybe a little bit more philosophical than it needed to be there, but, um, but I just wanted to amend what you were saying. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear that, you know, I can certainly smell what you're stepping in there. You know, it's, um, yeah, getting it, putting it out, putting a little bit of distance, yeah. you know, between our personality, you know, because that's, I think that, you know, again, let's just dive off the deep end, you know, we, we are not our personality, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're nothing to do with our quirks. And no matter how much I always say, you know, people will say, when will I, you know, um, if I have some sort of realization, you know, uh, will I stop these quirks that I have? I'm like, well, I don't probably not. You, you know, I, I, I would tend to believe that all of the awakened folks throughout history from Jesus to Buddha to uh, all had their own personalities. You know, when, when we're in this meat suit of an incarnation, personalities and quirks and, you know, are, are part of the gig, you know, and you could say karmic, you know, to burn off. I mean, it depends on your orientation, but while, while we're still here, we're going to have those elements, but when we recognize that they are not us and when like, you know, for the negative talk, negative self-talk, I mean, we, we all deal to, to one degree or another. Some people, you know, it's absolutely debilitating, but this negative self-talk and I will have clients ask me initially, well, how long will it be till I don't have that negative self-talk? And I'll be like, well, 
what if it never goes away? And like, you sound like a shitty coach, you know? And uh, I'll be, I'll be like, no, no, hear me out. Like, what if we didn't try to get rid of it? You know, obviously, as you know, that would, that which you give energy to that, which you resist feeds it. And so what if we just regulated it, you know, to the, to the back of the bus, you know, it may still be talking, but if it doesn't have any power over you, if you don't give it any energy, you can barely hear it. You never let it get in the front seat. You never let it drive. You don't even let it touch the fucking radio, you know, but it's still there because it probably at some point had some benefit to you. Nothing that we have within us didn't serve some purpose at some point. And now that we have grown to a certain degree, we're like, well, that negative self-talk served some, it just, it's no longer relevant. It no, it's no longer helpful. It's going to hang out so I can kind of, you know, F, you know, futu it, you know, and just be like, yeah, you know, I hear you, but you're not relevant anymore, you know? And so, um, that I think, you know, again, that is the part of the sailing versus rowing instead of trying to get rid of things, uh, just understanding them. You know, I will, I will say that I always prefer a realization of how things work than some technique or protocol to change something because te techniques and protocols uh, and we all have our, you know, there are many, many good techniques and protocols, and a lot of them will be useful to us. But in the end, they cannot be relied upon to always work. Whereas when we have an understanding of how things truly work, that realization will have implications that are immense and vast, and things will more naturally drop away and fade into the, you know, into the distance that no longer serve us instead of us actively going out and, you know, you know, the idea of self-improvement, you know, um, if we recognize there really isn't a self and we recognize that based improvement based on what, is there some, where did this criteria, you know, I mean, self-improvement, we have to, there are numerous presuppositions with self-improvement. If you're, if you're starting a program of self-improvement, you have to, number one, acknowledge that there is a separate self. I mean, you know, so even if that were true, let's just say that was true, then there's some sort of standard upon which you're judging selves, yourself against another self or, or some apparent other. And then you are determining you're falling below that mark. And then you're also deciding that this plan or this guru or this, you know, self-improvement, uh, talk, you know, speaker is the guy or woman to lead this quest. You know, I, I call bullshit on all of that. And I've, I've tried it dozens and dozens of times and had variable results. But in the end, you know, the realization that, you know, there is not a self to improve. There is a, there is a self that is created, an ego that is created and, and, and it's, it's useful to kind of bop around on this rock with all us other apes, you know, for now, I mean, it helps, you know, it, it, you know, to be, but in reality, you know, we are just all one consciousness and we are just expressing ourselves as individuals. And if at the foundational level, we know that, then we can get back to just playing, playing whatever game or games appeal to us for whatever reason. We don't have to justify why we want to get on stage 
you know, and and in, in a little bikini. We don't have to justify why we want to, you know, start an orphanage in or or have a McMansion. There's no justification needed if we're grounded. We're just doing shit that seems cool to do to try it out. And why not? I mean, as far as we know, we're here for a blink of an eye. You might as well just do shit. You might as well, you know, experience as much of the spectrum. Now, of course, we most of us would prefer to be on one end of the spectrum than the shitty end of the spectrum. But why wouldn't you want to at least taste all the freaking flavors, you know, of, of life? Because and who knows how many rounds we get, but, you know, I wouldn't risk it. So uh, while we're here, when we have a, a base foundation that is solid and pure, we can we can play all out and just really, really do and and get involved in anything we want with no real risk um, involved. Oh, that's that's amazing. That's amazing. I I really like the I, I like the idea of the the self being this constructed thing. You know, um, I think that makes it so much easier whenever you start to view who you are as a lot of these these constructed defense mechanisms and constructed um useful traits potentially like very temporally short useful traits like maybe again the canoe analogy where you've built up something that maybe 10 years ago would have been useful for you in that moment but you no longer need that anymore and you see this a lot or again I'm not a psychologist, but you know, trauma with anxiety and, and a lot of things like that. I, I like to speak of trauma as living in the past and anxiety as living in the future. Um, and it's very hard to rid yourself of both of those things enough to be present at any moment. And I'm very anxious. Like I, I, I would say that I'm not someone who has a lot of, a lot of trauma in, in my life, at least not a lot that is like, you know, on the surface, but I'm someone who very much anxiety. I think about the future a lot. Um, and then there are other people who are the opposite of, of who I am and how I operate there. They don't give a shit about the future. They, they're so stuck in the past. Um, but the way that you've broken that down, you know, obviously very eloquently, um, I had a, a friend who I talked to a, a few episodes ago on, on this podcast, his name's Mario. And he refers to that as like shadow selves. A, a lot of, a lot of these different aspects that make up your, yourself, your, yourself, um, that have kind of just pieced that puzzle together over time. It's not about breaking that down. It's about accepting them and moving it to the side and then moving on to the next aspect of your, your shadow self and acknowledging that, seeing it, appreciating it, moving into the side and getting again, all the way to the root. What is the root of, of who you are and the, the consciousness versus the self and all of that, it becomes a big convoluted mess, but I, I like that idea. For me, that is so much more easy to to get behind, to understand than religion, <laughs> than like, you know, formal, I guess, monotheistic religion, especially. Um, but whenever whenever I think of anything spiritual, um, I, I often defer to like the idea of consciousness and like this universi universality of of consciousness and and trying to figure out like what the fuck this thing even is right like it's this very you know unknown mysterious ominous force that no one has been able to pinpoint no one knows where it comes from no one knows where it, where it is where it's stored but it, it's what makes us us and it's like injects life into an otherwise very you know 
inorganic universe. And um, I'm curious to, to ask you and get your insight as what what you what your thoughts and experiences and maybe um, perception of what consciousness might actually be. That's a very loaded question, but I'm very curious just for my own curious my own my own curiosity um, as to like your your uh, perspective on something that is obviously like a very big question. Yeah, it, you know, and it's interesting because, and, and I had no doubt that, you know, if I, you know, monologued there and, and said it in a certain way that resonated with you, being an intelligent guy like you are, and you say, yes, that resonates with me. And what what's interesting is that first and foremost, people like us, we have no problem getting it on an intellectual level. Mm, yeah. Intellectually, because again, our minds will compartmentalize and compare and contrast and they'll, the whole bridging, it's like this, but not that, you know? And there's, again, there's nothing wrong. I mean, as a, it, it can be quite beneficial, I would say, in, if we don't stop there, right? So the intellectual, so all kinds of people will say, um, I, I get non-duality intellectually, but blank, 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 I'm still doing this or I'm still reacting to my wife, whatever it is. And um, so I often will stop them and say, actually, I have I have a shorter version of that. Do you want to hear it? And they'll say, yeah. And I'll say, I don't know yet. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. And it's completely cool to not know yet. You know, so we know and to forget that that's the key to for to know, to see something clearly and then to forget to default back into those, those, you know, that, that neuro pathway that we developed over time, because it's still pretty strong, we'll forget. And then we'll remember, and then we'll forget again. And that's like, seems to be the dance of this human incarnation. And, you know, usually we start forgetting less and we remember quicker, but that whole interplay, I mean, the beauty is you get to keep remembering again, you get born again over and over. Oh, I remember, you know, I was, uh, I was stuck in traffic the other day and I, you know, I, I was getting frustrated because I forgot that traffic can't make me frustrated. Nothing externally can make me feel anything. And of course I was the fucking traffic. <laughs> it, it was, you know, I mean, like, you know, I was given a, uh, a talk the other night and I ended, uh, as I often do just, you know, diving all the way in, not really giving a shit, you know, about the, the intellectual understanding because someone asked a similar question and, and I would say from my perspective, we are, we are all one. We are all, we are all one ocean of consciousness that, that, that is expressing itself moment to moment is seven point, whatever, nine billion different waves that all have unique characteristics, but, but we're all still the a one ocean and that we are not, that we are not separate entities moving around in this world that that are at odds with with other entities that are at odds with nature and with the world itself that we are at our essence we are untouchable we are uh resilient and we cannot be harmed in any way by by anything in the external world now the meat suit of course can be harmed so and can be neglected. So we should obviously take care of it. You know, we, we should, that, that just makes sense. And I think when we, when we fall and relax into what we truly are, it, it, it makes much more sense to take care of, of the vehicle that we have and not because we should, 
but because it just makes sense. It doesn't take discipline. When we recognize who and what we are, we might as well take care of this to have to have that experience. But we realize that our true essence cannot be harmed. Then fear falls away naturally. We don't have to have the fear and do it anyway. The fear naturally falls away and we can open up our hearts and we can move forward through the world, you know, relentlessly with an open heart, knowing that there's there's nothing that can touch us and and we can live from a place of safety and a place of love. And that I I often will end with something along those lines. And and one of my friends asked me afterward, they said, How many people do you think got that? And I'm like, oh, I don't I don't give a shit how many people I mean, I'm expressing what I see. Mm-hmm. And through doing that, I'm not, I, I have no skin in the game of anybody seeing what I see exactly, or, or I'm just sharing. And if what I'm sharing ignites within anybody, you know, any sort of flame or even a little teeny ember of something that then they can fan in whatever way and with whatever belief structure they have, if, they, if it can ignite something, then that's, that's all, where it takes them. That's none of my business. You know, how one how anyone lives their life is none of my business. But if, if through journeying and exploring and sharing like this together can be an impetus, you know, to, to help in any way, um, someone along their journey, then, then, then I am, you know, I'm blessed to have that opportunity. And of course it's, it's also selfish in that I get to share with you and, and I'm of course learning and growing at the same time. No, that's that's great that's honestly great and whenever anyone talks about like that subject like the subject of consciousness it's it's funny because like there's clearly not a real definitive answer to that but it is interesting to see how people go about trying to answer that uh, i feel like often or even if you would have asked me that i would not have been like who fucking knows you know i would have tried to give some kind of like intellectually like roundabout answer like oh you know i think based on this or that it could be this um, but I, I always really appreciate just someone that can say, who fucking knows? Who cares, really? Like, we don't have the answers right now. Um, and in a lot of ways, like knowing the answer might remove a lot of what makes that subject sacred. You know, like it's the it's the mystery that that has kind of held that above a lot of other things to be analyzed to the nth degree. Um, and I feel like whenever you know the answer, sometimes that does take away a lot of like the the magic of it. It, well, yeah, in any time to me, any time where I say or I think I know, I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. I know it means I'm done, you know, and I, I can't imagine being done. And, um, and so I, it doesn't, you know, I have an idea, I have a feeling, I have a sense of it. And that's why so much of talk about consciousness is we can talk about it, but really uh, combining that with feeling it. And so the Reiki or the, or the, the vagal nerve, you know, uh, techniques or the BACTA, anything that can calm us down into a state where our body is more conducive, our nervous system allows our mind just to relax a little bit in that space of, of surrender. And I do, I believe, you know, as far as my spiritual path, I do believe that, you know, there is a place for discipline. It's a, it's, it's not a big place, but there is a place for structured work to be done. 
but but the biggest chunk is the surrender and the allowing and that all the techniques and all the study and all of the meditation and any it all can take us up to a certain point and it can go it can take us pretty far but once we get in, in buddhism they call it you know the gate once we get to the gate i i don't believe personal will can bring us through i believe it's it's a matter of grace grace which is a matter of surrender. We, we pass through the gate. We are pulled. We are allowed through the gate. And then we look back and realize in Buddhism, they say it's the gateless gate. The gate was never there, of course. It's a cosmic joke. We're out looking for ourselves out there. And it's the hero's journey, right? It seems like all, we have to do the hero's journey. We go out looking for something that is always right here. And I don't know if we should lament that or it's like, that's just the way it seems to be. But we we get through the gate through um, through surrender, and that I think is uh, is one of the most powerful and underestimated. It seems to be in conflict with the making shit happen of our culture. But when we can can combine those things, and in the end realize that the final step, the final step off the cliff, if you will, into the free fall of true freedom is is more in action of surrender and grace than it is making anything happen. I, uh, I read something recently, just to kind of echo what you were saying there. I read something recently um, along these lines, because again, while I'm not religious, while I'm not what I would consider like classically spiritual, I have a lot of curiosity around all of those domains. Um, but it was, there was something regarding uh, meditation and meditation relating to um, to Buddhism and, you know, like, uh, Eastern spirituality in general, but the, uh, the crux of what I was reading at the moment was that, um, you know, finding this, this state of, of open consciousness, the state of, you know, feeling enlightened or waking up, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's a paradox because you approach that looking for it, but you can't find it looking for it. It's only through not looking for it and completely releasing essentially all of that control and letting go of all of those desires that you find it that you can get there it's it's a paradox and like every time i read something like that like i've read things in that capacity before um or along those lines every time i read it it's just like intuitively i understand what this is saying but it's it's still so far away from me being able to like internalize how one would be able to get to that point you know it's like for me that feels a lot like like someone just kind of like saying something that sounds very intellectually smart but then it's like okay but what do you do with that right um but obviously you know i have had experiences with psychedelics and i mean maybe this is something that we can kind of briefly touch on here because i think that it might provide a little bit more context to to the whole general conversation which is obviously going all over the place but um, but psychedelics, in a sense, it's it's thrusting you through that gate. <laughs> it's thrusting you through whether you want to go or not. Um, and it's it's a rocket, you know. It's, there's no grace involved. It's not flowing along this easy moving stream. It's like no, you're going over the waterfall. Like that's what that's what psychedelics generally can be. Whenever you break through that that veil, and then you see you see it all. It comes rushing in but you don't know what to do with it. Like it, there, it's just so overwhelming. You can't take it back with you. You can take bits and pieces back, but you know, a lot of times, and this is something I think we were, or maybe you had mentioned before, whenever we were talking, um, you know, maybe you know, 30 minutes or, or so ago, 
but but you had talked about people are are looking for something that will change the way they are, right? Like, I think psychedelics is is the quintessential example of something that people try to take a psychedelic, expecting it to change who they are fundamentally whenever they come back. They're expecting this this large experience, which going into it, that means nothing. <laughs> that means absolutely nothing. Coming out, that means something very different. But um, they're expecting to be a different person on the other side of it because they're going to learn something or you know, some aspect of their personality is just going to be stripped from them. It's going to fall away and it's never going to, to come back together again. Um, and that's not how psychedelics work. <laughs> that's just not how they work. Um, so maybe you want to touch on that a little bit and give a little more light onto the topic of psychedelics because we've had these private conversations and I know that you have a lot to add there. Yeah, I, I'm a fan of of responsible, you know, s sacred use of entheogens, uh, psychedelics, and the pseudo psychedelics, you know, that we talk about. And um, I have a lot of friends who, uh, you know, have dedicated their lives to that particular um, service. And um, it can be, it can be a, a a peeking behind the veil of, you know, and when you recognize that, depending on on the substance you're taking and the amount and and all the other uh, prep work and 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 set and setting, people can have incredible experiences uh, from union with God to seeing through uh, who they thought they were to um, you know to revisiting things from the past that they they maybe need to make right, you know, things of those nature. I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it's quite variable. There are some, some things that are relatively common, some, you know, really beautiful things that are relatively common, which you know, if not prepared for and, uh, and given a, other circumstantial variations can be quite alarming, such as, you know, dying over and over again and, and ego death and, and those sort of things and coming back and thinking what, what is real, yeah. you know? And so, I love working with clients. I mean, I have a lot of clients who I've seen for, you know, a good amount of time and eventually they, they do a journey with psychedelics. Um, and, and things do shift after that. Sometimes like, oh, now I see what the fuck you were talking about now, you know, now I, <laughs> because, you know, intellectually, intellectually, I understand that I'm not my body intellectually. I understand I'm none of the things that I've created around this ego sense. However, I, uh, so I think that th the key there is that we come back from a journey and then our mind takes over and it wants to compartmentalize and, and categorize and decide what was real and what wasn't real. And of course the mind has a very limited sense of, of what is real, you know, and, but I think the beauty of psychedelics or having any sort of realization, whether that be through meditation or, you know, a, a beautiful sunset or, you know, or, you know, freaking orgasm, whatever it might be. If you have some connection to truth, I don't, the aperture opens up and you see something. I do not believe it ever closes all the way back down. It, you know, it may feel like it, you know, you can sense it closing, you know, of uh, the, the, the honeymoon week after a journey, you know, if it's a certain kind of journey, you, you can see you're one with everything. And then it start then you start creeping back in to your kind of your old behaviors and it feels so shitty that way. But really it, I don't believe the aperture ever closes all the way. And so, um, and then the real, the real work, as you know, is, is not 
the experience of the journey itself, but it, it is the integration. What are you, what are you going to do with what you've seen and doing oftentimes is just surrendering into that feeling into that. What, what would it be like for me to, to move through this afternoon at the grocery store? If it were true that every individual that appears to be separate from me is actually just me. What if that were true? And then just pay attention. And when you, and, and then ask yourself afterward, what was that like? If, if that, if that had been true, I'm not saying it is, but let's just pretend. How did it feel? How did it change the interaction between the two? How did it, how did you perceive that supposed other person? And so it, it gives us some tools and some building blocks to start experimenting with and playing with. Um, and so in that, in that way, medicine, psychedelics, medicine can be, uh, enormously useful, uh, not to mention, of course, all the studies they're doing for addiction and, you know, and resetting the brain. And, you know, there, there's tremendous things happening with rewiring of the brains and, and the glutamate network with ketamine there, you know, there's, there's so many applications that um that are going on in the brain besides the experience that you may or may not be having on the journey you know itself um but i i, I am a fan and I, I enjoy working with people who who have had those experiences because even on even on the on the table you know with reiki you know, you know it, it's different you know once you've dropped in or sometimes been thrust into you know a different uh, level of, of consciousness and reality, you know, things never quite go back to the way they were before, because you've, you've got a, you, you have, you have an insight that things aren't as they seem things are, and they, that can be if, if you don't have, um, say the right support that can be very disconcerting yeah. or of course it can be a really exciting. Because not knowing what is real can be, I don't know what is real. Or it could be like, I wonder what's real here, you know? And, um, you know, and really be an opportunity to, to lean in and, and, to, and to surrender into that and then explore with your new, you know, we call it your new vampire eyes, right? Going around and seeing how do things look now from this vantage point? And I, I, I just find that, incredibly uh liberating um if not immediately over time to be uh very very helpful for folks i like to think of it as especially a very a very strong experience i like to think of it as like a hard reset it's it's you're rebooting your system um but you have the choice you get to choose what new software you download on the other side of that a lot of times people download the same fucking software and they just keep doing the same shit that they did before, but just becoming more insufferable because they tell everyone about this experience that they had. And then they now think that they're like better than everyone else because they've seen the light and no one else has. And they, they had no, they had this knowledge that no one else has. So now they're, they're the same person. They're just, they, they suck more. Right. And I've seen that happen. I've seen that happen a lot. And, um, you know, there are other times where it's, it's a, a subtle difference. It's a subtle difference in who that person is on the other side. They don't have to tell everyone about it, you know, but it potentially was extremely profound and they just start 
living their life in a little bit different way. And it's like, maybe that new software is 1% different, but over time, that 1% difference leads in a completely different direction in life that takes them completely in, in a new path. And, um, and I like to think that like, I was that second, <laughs> that second case, you know, um, mine was, mine was definitely a very hard reset. I've, I've had, um, multiple pretty big experiences. Um, but there was one that I like to consider like before this, I was one person after this, I was another person. Or I have been another person. Um, that, that was kind of like the defining point, the, the taking the road less traveled portion of my life, right? Like that was where I have one choice. I have another choice and I'm going to choose this different one. Um, and again, I, I like to think that I'm a better, different person after, after that experience, but who fucking knows, man, who knows? But I, I will agree with you though, that like the aperture is never quite closed for me. There's always that sense of, and maybe this is where that, that curiosity is ultimately stemmed from with a lot of these like kind of larger, maybe existential questions of wanting to know more about like the way everything works is because like I had that slate completely wiped clean and anyone who has taken um, a large dose of psychedelics has probably understood what this means, but it's where everything was stripped away. Everything is gone. You just see everything, what it is. You just see what everything is without any kind of of bias without any kind of, of predisposition, without anything informing that decision. You're just experiencing everything for what is. And that's like a, obviously a very strong revelation, you know? Um, and a lot of times you have to have your ego kind of like violently stripped away before you you get to that point. Um, but again, once you have that experience and that's been ingrained inside of you, it's really hard to remove that. And, maybe that's why so many people have had those very strong psychedelic experiences, whether that's, you know, I was, I was gonna say even MDMA, like people can have those extremely profound experiences of, of empathy and understanding and love on, on MDMA a little bit different when it versus, you know, an LSD or psilocybin or DMT or an ayahuasca or anything like that. Um, but you know, whether someone comes back insufferable, whether they come back enlightened, whether they come back just slightly different, um, I don't think really that matters in the grand scheme of things too much, but there is an aspect of just having been able to experience something that is so profound, so ineffable, so large that you don't really know what to do with it. You don't know what to do with it whenever everything kind of builds back to form yourself. And that's something I feel like I've struggled with a lot. Um, and that's, I, that's been a little bit more of a difficult integration for me over the past like few years of having this, this very, very, very profound experience, but not knowing where to put that, <laughs> not knowing what to do with that. Is that something that you, uh, you've experienced yourself or maybe that you've seen with other people as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt. And it's, it's what I like to work with as far as integration with, with clients, you know, um, once they've seen that. And again, you can see it in other ways, but psychedelics is certainly a shortcut at times right. to to be able to see it. And what can happen, the reason it seems everyone wants to, you know, they're nagging the hell out of you because you haven't done it and you have to do it and they become, you know, apostles for this. Right. Either number one, I mean, it's, it's well-intended. I mean, they've seen something they want to share it with you. So, I mean, that's, I think that comes from a good place. 
or which is very common, the ego can kind of co-opt what has been seen. And all of a sudden you become an enlightened ego, so to speak. And, um, those can be somewhat intolerable. You know, it, it's understandable how it can happen, but when we come back from something that is ineffable, our mind of course, tries to categorize it. And that categorization is ego based. And so then I become more awakened than I was before, you know, I become a better version of what I was before. And so I think it's a, it's a somewhat common natural process and I'm not, you know, uh, putting anyone down because I, I have certainly fallen for that as well. But I think, I think in the end, the real question is from what I've now seen and felt, how can that be a foundation upon which I can then go and live my life in the, in, in this relative reality? You know, we're, th this is not it. I mean, it, it, people who have done enough psychedelics, this is not all there is. There's a lot more going on than what it seems. But this relative reality we find ourselves in, uh, you know, it as far as day-to-day -day goes, it, it's the best damn game in town. So how do I straddle the world of the formless and the form? How does, how do I interact with the, the cashier, you know, who's taking fucking forever and talking, uh, you know, incessantly about non, you know, how do I deal with that little frustration if foundationally I can sit back and re rest back and reckon, oh, I'm getting caught up in the form right now, but I know my body, my nervous system knows that this is not all there is. This is not even, you know, a speck of all there is. So how can, how can we use a foundation of, of that knowledge that is still, in, you know, ineffable, but, but we know it's true. So how can we integrate, how can we, how can we walk that line, enjoy ourselves, create in this relative world with the, I would say the, the immense power of the knowledge that foundationally we are untouchable. We cannot be harmed. You know, there's nothing that can, can touch our, our, uh, our origin of love. And when we can when we can walk that line and catch ourselves when we go too far. Now you can go too far. Well, I would say you can go too far the other way too. If you're stuck in the realm of the absolute, you know, we know people like this that, I mean, they're so, their feet don't touch the ground when they walk around and, and they, they seem quite happy, but they can't pay. They don't, they forget the pay mortgage. You know I mean? It's like, you know, they, they've, they've gone so far in the other direction they still have time here in this relative reality, but they're denying it. Yeah. So to, to deny either one, once you know that there, there, you know, there are, you know, we'll say there's two, there's not, but let's, you know, say there's two. Once you know that spectrum to deny either one is to, is to really shortcut and short circuit your, your overall experience of, of life. I, I would highly agree with what you're saying there that um, even though, we would both agree that what we see is not really what there is. It's not the only thing that there is. There, there's something more, um, you know, whether we can ultimately get there without psychedelics, whether through meditation or just like through this profound spirituality or this acceptance, um, being able to see or break through that, that veil. Uh, I agree with you hundred percent there. There is something more. This isn't just this 
made up construct of, you know, random electrical signals through your brain mediated by random neuro neurochemicals. I, it's just there, there's something more. It's, it's, it, I, it's hard for me to believe that those experiences are, are not something, something fundamental. And I also think that there is, there is an aspect of not allowing that understanding or that belief to impact negatively your experience that you have here. You know, I still firmly believe that everyone should attempt to maximize the time that they have in this fleshy meat suit. Um, I, I don't think that life should be this permanent purgatory that you just have to suffer through to get to the other side. I don't think that that's what it should be. I think that there ha there is a reason for us being in these fleshy meat suits, you know? Um, and I, I think that we, we should still aim to maximize that experience. I, whether that maximization for, for you is, you know, living in a big mansion or, you know, walking on a beach every day or, you know, living or staying and sleeping and living with your, your significant other, or, you know, maximizing your value in the world through like your work or whatever it is. I, I think that everyone should have, have something that they strive for because I, I it, ultimately that striving gives us purpose in some capacity, as long as it is coming from a fundamentally no clean goal place, you know, going back to that. Um, just before we, we kind of start wrapping this up, I do want to talk a little bit about, um, you, you mentioned in terms of psychedelics, making sure that it's done in a safe, healthy, respectful way. You even refer to psychedelics medicine. I think that that's a, a really good practice because it does lend a bit more seriousness and less recreation to, to what they are. Um, in general, psychedelics shouldn't be viewed as like cocaine or weed, or I mean, weed is even a little bit more beyond that, but like co a cocaine or, you know, uh, a benzo or something like that, where, I mean, that's a, a recreational drug for the most part, like that, that's a narcotic, a psychedelic is not something that you just should be doing for fun the majority of the time, you know, and unfortunately, a lot of people don't understand that until they really understand it, but then that becomes a very, very, very difficult thing to integrate into their normal life. Once they've had an experience like that, that they're not prepared for. Um, I, I think maybe, you know, want to speak to how important it is to actually understand what these compounds are, how they might potentially interact in your body, the experience that you maybe will come to, to face to face with. And then, you know, some good practices for how to be able to like reintegrate that on the other side. Um, just speak to some of that. Sure. I mean, um, you know, again, this is, it's the serving of med. I mean, I do have several friends who are, are medicine people that, you know, there is, that is their full job and they take it extremely seriously as, as they should. And so, um, finding, you know, the right person, the right group is, is crucial. And understanding that it's is not uh, not recreational use. You're not going to have, you know, a uh, a a drug experience per se. You know, you're you're going in there to explore. You're going in there to do work. And then when you are with a legitimate now, of course, there are a lot of studies going on. So eventually, maybe in a year or two, there will be 
you know, psychologists who will be, you know, using MDMA and ketamine, which is already legal off label. So there's all kinds of things on the horizon. There's no doubt because of the, uh, the effectiveness of the treatments. Um, but there has been for 45, 50 years, there's been an underground of, of dedicated folks using, uh, risking their licenses uh, at times in order to use these compounds within an environment that is that is truly therapeutic. Now, it can be spiritual and therapeutic at the same time. There are therapy uh, settings that that don't have much spiritual element to them, you know, in, in a more traditional sense. Then there are medicine people who are outside of that mainstream licensure who are quite good. Now, you, you have to, you know, buyer beware, you know, make sure you do your homework, make sure you know people who have had good experiences with these people and and the groups that you're involved with. Um, there are more and more than, than ever. It's becoming, of course, there's also money to be made. So again, be careful, um, you know, really vet who you're going to be working with and make sure that um, through whatever means possible that you've vetted them to a degree that you feel comfortable um, having some trepidation going into a journey, especially if it's your first one, but really almost any journey I would think is healthy. There should be a little bit because you never really know what's going to happen. So there can be a walking that line between excitement and nervousness, I think is probably wise to have that bit of a feeling. And then having a plan, uh, any good medicine person will, will make sure you're set and setting are proper. We'll make sure you have the proper kinds of music that would elicit the, the you know, the, the kind of uh, exploration that you're intending. Uh, but really, the, I think the biggest key and the most challenging for people is to, you know, be able to allow and let go. So you can have your intentions and, you know, you can work on meditating and when you're ahead of time and you might fast and there's all kinds of practices which can be useful. But in the end, you're, you know, you're most well-served by accepting, acknowledging whatever comes forth, you know, and, and inquiring as to why I'm seeing, you know, there have been people who have not used the medicine. It's, it's odd to say you can talk to the medicine. You can ask the medicine, you know, why are you showing me this? You know, I don't understand what this is. Can you show me in a different way? Can you, you know, you know, there's, it sounds it sounds funky, but you know what I'm talking about. You know, you can commune and communicate with the medicine in that way and develop a a relationship, you know, that these medicines are here to help us and to show us, um, to give us, to, to propel our insights, to supercharge our insights. Uh, and then, of course, uh, afterward is where the real, the real beauty happens. Having an experience, seeing something is, can be, profound and overwhelmingly blissful or or can be quite a challenge but the real benefits come through the sustained work afterward and grounding in what you have seen and exploring through whatever you know multiple modalities uh, using the the new insight that you've that you've attained in a way that is able to express itself in your day-to-day -day life before you ever consider going back in for another one. The people often will two weeks later, I want to have another journey, you know, um, because they want to have that experience again when it's not really, it's not really about the experience. So most of my medicine people will recommend at least six months between any sort of sizable journey 
just to um, to allow that integration time period to be of most benefit to to what you can then take into your next exploration. That that's great. Um, that's honestly really great advice. I would. I'm probably a little bit more like on the extreme caution end of of everything, just because I've I've had my own experiences. I've also seen other people have um, some pretty pretty intense experiences that they weren't really prepared or ready for. So, you know, anytime I start having these conversations with, with people, I'm just, man, like do your research, take the time, understand what you're doing, understand what these compounds are, understand what the repercussions could be, surround yourself with people that you trust, that you're comfortable with. You know, it, it's, it's almost this laundry list of, of precautions and, over here, like on the other side, it's like, oh yeah, also like this good thing could happen. You know, it's like, I feel like I'm, I'm so far on the other end just because they're just generally so, um, so propped up, so propped up positively, which obviously the positive experience is so profound. It's, it's un again, ineffable. You can't even, you can't speak of it. You can't put, put words to it. Uh, but I feel like because there are such profound positive experiences, the negatives or the potential negatives just kind of get washed away at times. And it's like an afterthought. Oh yeah. You know, like, you know, maybe you'll also kind of like go crazy and lose your mind and like drop into psychosis and end up in like a loony bin, you know, but don't worry about that. That couldn't be you. That'll never be you. You know, it's like, I've, I've heard that before of, you know, well, this could happen, but it could never happen to me. It's like, that is the absolute worst thing you could ever think or, or say out loud, because anytime there is a possibility, it could always be you. It could always be you. Um, you know, that definitely hit me. That hit me whenever I, um, whenever I had a very you know, profound experience, but again, I think just being extremely cautious, understanding like what these compounds do, how to do them safely, how to surround yourself with the right people to allow that integration on the other side. It's obviously the most important part of that, but we could continue talking all day. Honestly, um, I know that there are a lot of things that we talked about going over and we wanted to, to go over and we've honestly just gone on so many different tangents. We've gone down a lot of rabbit holes already. And I, I want to be respectful of your time. I think that we should definitely do this again at some point, because I would love to get into a lot of the other things that we had planned to talk about, like the, the V-Activated, the Reiki, um, some more about the coaching that we just kind of <laughs> got derailed on uh, today. But um, is there anything that you want to add before we we go, um, maybe you know, plug yourself, plug your services, plug where people could find you. Sure, you know, and and yes, I'd, I'd love to hit this up again. It's been it's been really fun, and yeah, we we can we could go on for a long time and hit the you know the Joe Rogan length of podcast oh, here. Yeah, yeah. It, it probably is better to to cut it you know just to a moderate length here. I'd lo I'd love to to meet up again. There's there's lots to talk about, and you know, really, I think you've mentioned it several times. Uh, curiosity mm -hmm. you know it's it's about it's about a com i always say compassionate curiosity about you know for oneself and for everyone else an empathetic curiosity i really think that is that's the key that that is, curiosity is the engine that, that drives it all you know so instead of a, a self-improvement sort of you know instead of looking at the ways that we are you know uh, not measuring up and thinking i need to change that switching it over to a hmm isn't it interesting i've seen the truth 
Isn't it interesting? I've seen what this behavioral pattern ends up being every single time, and yet I'm still drawn to do it right now. Isn't that fascinating? And open up the heart and really get curious. And hopefully you'll do it again because then you get to see it again and again. And with repetition, like reading the same book over and over again, you will see things differently. And when curiosity brings about an insight, when curiosity, when you start seeing the same thing you've seen before differently, then different things make sense. And when different things make sense, you start doing and behaving differently. And all of a sudden, you've broken that habit because you've just stopped doing it. Discipline isn't, isn't anywhere in the picture. It just doesn't make sense anymore. And that is the, that, that beauty of effortless effort. And I, you know, I appreciate it. You've, you've mentioned curiosity many times. Um, and that, that is what I'm, I, I always come back to a compassionate curiosity. And so if anyone's curious about me <laughs> on that note, uh, my website is renegadelifecoach.com. I, uh, human form fitness is our, is our holistic gym here in town. And you can find my book, Spiritual Constipation, on, uh, on Amazon and I guess anywhere else that questionable books are being sold these days. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. Steven, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, it's been my pleasure, man. 